edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Some of us, like maybe many of you, could be wondering how you missed the meteoric rise of GameStop stock. Alas, I could have funded my retirement in a week, but we're not billionaires yet, so we're going to stick with what we know, which is farmer regulation and policy. First up today are the new developments with COVID-19 vaccine policy. President Biden released his plan to end the pandemic, and it included a promise to explore dose-sparing strategies for the vaccines. That immediately raised eyebrows with a bunch of us who follow the FDA. Sarah, you took a look at this for us. Yeah, so I did take a look at this. Unfortunately, so far, um, the White House um, has not really been forthcoming into what kinds of dose-sparing strategies they would like to look at. um, And all of the sort of relevant agencies that would you would expect would be doing this work or involved in it kind of did not want to comment and deferred to the White House. So to me, it's a question of do they have a strategy or things they're working on and they don't want to say, or did somebody sort of throw this idea into the plan and it hadn't been fully fleshed out or fully decided whether they were really going to follow through with this? So I'm going to keep bugging them, I think, a bit to see if eventually um, we can get some more information. Obviously, you know, there's been at different times during this vaccination kind of development and debate, there's been questions of, you know, should we be trying to give more people the first shot of Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines? um, Because it seems like there's some benefit just of the first shot and, you know, maybe even if that means getting the second dose quite a bit later than intended, or even if there's a chance, you know, maybe some people might not be able to get second shots at all based on supply. Um, Monsef Slawi at one point suggested that based on, you know, antibody data, perhaps you could even half have the dose of Moderna's vaccine and give two smaller doses, which would also stretch it. So it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see if the Biden team had any real plans to test this out, these ideas out, if if they're worth testing um, so we could get data. Because even now that we know, um, you know, it looks like J&J and Novavax have good data on their vaccines, we're still probably going to be in a state for a while where we have um, more demand and more need for vaccine than we have supply. So, um, you know, if these stra- if any kind of dose bearing strategy would work, it would certainly be very helpful to this global effort. But like I said, it's unclear if the Biden team is really sort of serious about this or not. Yeah, that that was what kind of, you know, made me wonder about this. I mean, you have to be really careful with some of the wording here. Like, I mean, like dose sparing means something significant to a lot of people who, you know, they don't, you know, so if you're going to throw that word around, you have to be really careful to make sure you mean what you, what you intend, because there's going to be, I mean, people are going to read that plan now and think, oh, you know, maybe we don't need to give the vaccine right away. And they'll read the CDC recommendation and say, oh, maybe we don't need that second dose for, you know, just come back in six weeks. We don't need you, you know, it day 28 or day 21, whatever it is. Right. So that was the other thing that I I guess I didn't mention and you sort of just alluded to, which is um, 
right around the time that this plan came out, CDC very quietly updated its website and with a line kind of indicating it's okay to give either of the Pfizer or Moderna shots, you know, up to six weeks, the second shot up to six weeks after the first. And, um, you know, the EUAs for those shots for the Pfizer BioNTech product, it's three, it's supposed to be three weeks between doses for Moderna's, it's four. Um, and the CDC wording is very vague. And again, because of what the Biden report said, because of all this other conversation, I think it was important to get clarity from them. Are you mentioning that, like, do you think this should be a broad plan for people to, you know, get the shot late, the second shot later? So again, more people can get a first shot faster. Or is, are you just sort of saying, we understand real life happens, um, people can't, you know, people can't always get back quite on time. Again, there may be slight supply hiccups. And are you saying this is kind of the window where you really should get your shot by? And it it, it does seem to be the latter. The, the CDC is not, um, you know, trying to, the CDC really is pushing people to get the second shot when they should get it. They're just, you know, want to make sure you know, providers recognize that you shouldn't turn somebody away because they missed their second, sh you know, this precise sort of time frame for their second shot. So I think that's um, important to flag. Yeah, it's it's uh, um, an effort at flexibility, not uh, sort of kind of moving in a new direction uh, necessarily. It's uh, it's funny how there's this uh, almost uh, unintended uh, consequence of the fact that uh, um, uh, both Moderna and the uh, the Pfizer uh, um, trials were uh, were so good. There's sort of a dearth of data on sort of kind of what happens if you sort of get a vaccine sort of kind of outside that window, or you know what happens if you only get one shot and sort of kind of, uh, or what happens if uh, um, the vaccine uh, regimen doesn't actually work. I mean, sort of, we've been talking about sort of kind of how the uh, the fact that there were so few uh, breakthrough cases on uh, people that got uh, both shots means there's, it's harder to establish. Uh, Correlative protection because you don't, uh, you know, uh, have the chance to look at patients that uh, that uh, you know got the uh, the appropriate dosing, but uh, but still got uh, got sick. So uh, um, there's a lot of uh, instances where we'd sort of like to have data about sort of what we should do in these particular circumstances, but because those were such uh, um, monumentally effective uh, vaccines, we uh, we don't. Which uh, you know are obviously very grateful that they are. Uh, um, they were so uh, um, so impactful, but it, it sort of leaves a lot of a lot of uh, um, other scenarios were still uh, still uncertain because of that. And some of that's a function of the speed that the development uh, was undertaken too. I mean, you know, you still have to people still have to be reminded. Hey, we developed a vaccine in a year, you know, which is two vaccines in a year. Well, actually, three now if you count the J and J one with the their successful data. So it it's you know, there's only so much you can do you know, in the span, in the, the sped up time frame that they were doing it. So some of this stuff is, you know, either going to have to be left to the post-marketing or just, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, watched for, you know, on an observational basis, like using uh, real world data and so forth. Yeah, we were recording this the uh, the morning the J&J &J, uh, um, uh, uh, data came out and uh, I haven't had a chance to uh, um, uh, pour over such as it is, but uh, um what do you all think of the fact that it seems to be sort of kind of not quite as effective, uh, even though it's uh, you know probably sort of easier to administer and 
and store, do you think there's going to be sort of some tension between sort of who gets what shot, or is it going to be sort of more of a uh, get what you want kind of thing? So, or, uh, yeah. I saw somebody who was on the J&J call this morning tweet that, you know, or not the J&J call, sorry, I think NIH maybe, there was a call where, um, you know, people were trying, I think Fauci from NIH was trying to emphasize, you know, we we shouldn't really be so focused on comparing the results at this point. I think you have to be cautious, um, you know, to compare different trials and, you know, say it's a clean cut one is clearly much, you know, better or worse than the other, just off these top line numbers. We also remember J&J is, has data in South Africa, has patients, you know, um, who are in their trial in South Africa and places the world where we now know there are these variants um, that it seemed like, you know, Pfizer and Moderna didn't have to deal with in their trials. So right, right. what would the data of, a what would the, da- the data, top line data from a, a Pfizer trial with, you know, a population of South African patients dealing with this variant look like. Um, I mean, it's still, the efficacy numbers are still much higher than FDA had sort of set <laughs> as the floor. Um, yeah. The other thing um, I think seems noticeable is that the, the efficacy is, is better when you look at severe prevention of like severe disease, the most severe outcomes. And at the end of the day, um, you know, obviously people don't like getting sick at all, but if you can prevent people from being hospitalized and dying, you know, and being on ventilators, that in in, in itself is going to be a win. And my guess is just that, you know, people aren't going to get much of a choice, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, you're just, I mean, with the supply limitations and how the distribution is do- doing it, I guess potentially if people, if, you know, scientists and experts look at this and could maybe say, look, we should send X shot to this region because of, you know, the variants at play, or maybe should we prioritize older, more vulnerable people for one shot over the other? But I, I'm just, I'm doubtful, like, the average person is going to have a, um, the t- you know, the ability to um, make decisions like this. It also could come down to logistics as well. Right. I mean, it's it's going to be, I mean, and, and part, and we've seen this already. I mean, you know, they're able to, they were able to get healthcare workers vaccinated with the Pfizer and the Moderna shots really quickly because they're all in, at least a lot of them are in hospitals and, you know, these settings where it's easy to go say, okay, go get your shot, walk down the hall, you know, and so maybe going forward, that kind of becomes, you know, a determinant where you say like, okay, you know, I mean, this is kind of an extreme example, but you say like, okay, we're doing like a, you know, we're going to a largely rural area where people aren't going to, are, are, you know, don't necessarily have an easy way to get back here on multiple times. So maybe we give them the single shot as a vaccine, as opposed to the, you know, the two shot uh, regimen. Um, The other thing I like to, you know, just, you, you laugh about it. We're, We're complaining about 72% 72% protection, you know, which is, you know, it, it again, the 72%, that's 22% above the threshold that FDA said was the minimum. And <laughs> because we have well two above, that are 94. <laughs> right, and well above zero. <laughs> which, yeah, um, it could be zero. <laughs> um, I think is like, I mean, again, with the, the emergence of variants um, with Trent, transmission being high, you know, experts are saying we need to 
get people, you know, vaccinated and stem transmission as fast as possible because we don't want to keep, you know, transmission high and have more new variants emerge and we keep sort of chasing this virus um, before we can ever get it, you know, it under control to some degree. So I, I just, it, it's hard to see, you know, any scenario where it's just sort of not an effort to kind of flood the zone with all the available candidates. Uh, the other thing I was, I know J&J also has, is working on like a two shot trial. So it'll be interesting to see like what their two shot version is, um, especially because I, it seems like the protection increases for J&J's vaccine the further you get out. So I think the primary endpoint was 28 days after the first, after the shot, but then um, people were saying the data at, I think around like 49 days looks even better. So, and we don't know for any of these vaccines what the long-term durability is. So potentially, you know, maybe out of the, all the options we have now, you know, a sh one of the shots may work over a longer period of time than others. So there's just a lot of things I think we'll learn over time as to like the best use of the various products. Yeah, that's that's actually a great transition to the next story, Sarah, which is yours uh, looking at the um, looking at the FDA plans to get the necessary evidence to kind of tweak the vaccines as we you know find out more about the variants like you know like the ones that have already popped up from South Africa and I believe Brazil and the UK. Right. So. Um we, we know that Moderna and Novavax have both said they're working on boosters to address uh, the South African variant of the virus, which seems like in terms of antibody levels, the vaccines don't, you know, produce quite as high levels of antibodies against that variant. So the question becomes, you know, how does FDA clear um, updates to EU vaccines? And it, Peter Marks earlier this week suggested that while they haven't, you know, finalized what they're going to ask for companies, they're leaning against requiring any kind of large, you know, efficacy study with hard clinical outcomes and thinking they could probably do it with immunogenicity data. Um, the thing that I've been sort of trying to ask people about because very late on in Stephen Hahn's tenure, he talked about, you know, FDA and other parts of the government working to identify an immune correlate of protection. So some kind of lab result like, you know, your antibody levels that would, you could be pretty confident, okay, if you have this level of antibody, the vaccine is going to, um, it does have that, you know, outcome on like severe disease or death or moderate, you know, disease or whatever. Um, and it's not clear, it doesn't appear that our FDA has said, you know, we don't have that correlate yet, but absent that they seem like they're sort of okay, at least in some situations, approving updates on just sort of like a fairly good confidence it is a correlate I guess so that's something that'll be interesting to me to watch is you know um I know the companies are supposed to be sort of looking at you know the breakthrough cases from their trials to sort of try and figure out correlates but it'll be interesting to see you know basically if FDA starts making decisions on kind of surrogates before a surrogate is kind of fully validated 
Yeah, the uh, the agency and the sponsors face the same challenge when they're trying to sort of uh, um, uh, get uh, you know pediatric uh, approval as uh, as well. So, we're kind of what do you do in terms of, sort of kind of uh, um, the 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 you know how how can you extrapolate the data from adults to uh, pediatrics? And they're obviously sort of kind of in uh, um, in trials uh, there too. But sort of be uh, um, it's a uh, it's a challenge to uh, to see sort of, kind of how the how the data, data can sort correspond. And certainly for kids, I guess, I mean, it would, right, it would probably mean you'd have to have, a, I mean, as Peter Mark said this for the, like, updates to the vaccines, the, like, immunogenicity studies would mean a lot fewer patients. Certainly, you know, you get that data a lot faster. And for pediatric studies, that could be particularly attractive, um, especially as you go down the um, age band, I'm guessing. I know Moderna's already had a little bit of a hard time recruiting, like, older children and teens. So I imagine if that's hard. It might be even harder if you're talking about, you know, kids under 12 um, for parents to consent to that. I also thought it was interesting that kind of the the comparison to this has always been like how we do the flu, how the FDA does the flu vaccine every year and, and how, you know, they eventually, you know, they kind of just do, they do the research, whatever, what they how they think the strain's going to um, evolve. And then that's what they base the vaccine on. Um, for the the uh, for the for the updated approval, but um, Mar Peter Marks didn't really say that they're ready to do that yet. But he didn't really kind of rule it out. He seemed to think that you know once they kind of get used to it, I guess that they'll kind of be able to. They think they might be able to do something like that in the future. I think that's certainly the uh, the hope, and it'll be interesting to see sort of kind of how. Uh, how people sort of think about the uh, that annual uh, vaccination if it becomes both the uh, the flu and the uh, the coronavirus uh, update. Uh, um, obviously, the uh, um, the flu vaccine is not as widely uh, um, uh, dosed as uh, people would like, uh, and so maybe sort of kind of uh, um, you know sort of having a being a, a coronavirus uh, co shot or uh, um, you know the uh, um, how you get it. Uh, um, Separately, sort of, kind of would uh, would get people who are more in the mindset of, oh yes, I need to get my flu shot uh, every year. But uh, um, you know, it's uh, um, I guess we're a ways off from sort of kind of tracking the uh, um, tracking the uh, coronavirus like we track the track the flu every uh, every season. Yeah, I think I mean Mark sort of said, you know, perhaps eventually they'd be able to clear you know new COVID vaccines in the same way we do. Um, flu vaccines, but, you know, they have certain, you know, you, you, the amount of experience they have doing that with flu vaccines is is quite large. And so um, as with most, a lot of things in, you know, science and FDA, they want to sort of, they want to do it the, the sort of longer, hard way that's more, that's, they're more confident in and before they sort of take any you know, shortcuts without it being sort of more scientifically validated. I think once they, um, again, if they find sort of correlates or other things and they can be really confident, I think eventually they will speed things up. But it, it's, it's going to take some time for the science to get there. I was also like looking in our archives yesterday. I mean, I think even, even back in like the spring, people were already talking about, um, do we need a, um, like a universal coronavirus vaccine? <laughs> so, um, and of course, obviously they've been chasing a flu one for a long time. That's been a goal and we don't have one, but it'll be interesting to see if 
um, you know, companies start looking at that as an option and how that works. Mm -hmm. So that leads us to our non-COVID stories of the week, which look at President Biden's potential nominees for some key administration posts for pharma. Three candidates have been floated for CMS administrator, according to our sister publication, MedTech Insight. Chiquita brooks Lashore, Andy Slavitt, and John Blum have been, uh, have na their names have been uh, thrown out there. Lashore is a former CMS Deputy Director of Policy and Regulation. Slavitt is a former acting CMS Administrator and a member of Biden's COVID Response Task Force. And Blum is a former Deputy CMS Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicare. Um, and I know every you know this is this has already come up, but I, I'm a little surprised Andy Slavitt's on the list. To be honest, uh, I, I don't follow CMS as closely as some of some others, but um, you know he's already got a role in in the president's uh, on the president's COVID response team. So I, I don't know if any of that if that you know if if I'm way off base on that or if anyone any of these other names are sticking out to you. Yeah, I mean the other two people were not really. Um even having, you know, followed a lot of CMS policies related to drugs closely over the past few years. And, um, you know, even, I mean, these were all Obama era people. So even then they just, they weren't, you know, very, they weren't names that, you know, jumped out at me. That doesn't mean you have to be like a super prominent person to get, <laughs> get the job. And perhaps sometimes, you know, not having a very, a, a big public track record may help you, right? Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I agree with you that I'm skeptical that Slavitt would be in line for the nomination if he already has a position, unless his sort of coronavirus position is meant to be more of a short-term gig. I don't know. I mean, given how the pandemic is going at this point, it's hard to see the White House sort of wrapping up that the group that Slavitt is participating in um, anytime soon. But it's you know anything is possible. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the early speculation uh, about uh, uh, David Kessler perhaps returning to uh, FDA, and now he's gotten a role in the uh, coronavirus, and uh, that seems to be sort of the uh, the the center of gravity that's sort of kind of sucking all the uh, experienced, uh, you know, healthcare uh, um, staffers are kind of into, into its orbit. So uh, um, I agree with Sarah that sort of it seems uh, unlikely that uh, uh, Slavit will uh, um, return to uh, um, CMS, but uh, um, he certainly has some uh, has some thoughts about sort of kind of how it could uh, could operate. Uh, um, uh, Kathy quoted him in a uh, um, our colleague Kathy Kelly quoted him in a story earlier in the month talking about sort of kind of how uh, um, you know there you you should expect to see uh, you know Medicare payment model experimentation uh, under the Biden administration. So uh, um, you know uh, um, I think he sort of has a good uh, sense of uh, what uh, um, Biden wants to do and. Uh, um, Obviously, this administration is comfortable. We're kind of putting people uh, uh, back where uh, where they were uh, in the similar uh, um, posts uh, with the uh, Obama administration. So uh, um, anything could uh, could happen. And uh, you know, I think uh, um, expecting a uh, CMS that's very similar to kind of what uh, um, the Biden administration uh, or the Obama administration, excuse me, uh, did with some lessons learned is probably the uh, um, the best uh, um, you know way to plan if you're uh, you're thinking about uh, um, what to expect. So uh, um, I think uh, um, that uh, it's interesting that uh, um, uh, Brooks Lashur was a, uh, a Waxman staffer too, I think. So uh, um, this were kind of that tree of uh, 
health policy lives uh, um, lives on in terms of sort of kind of people that uh, might be running uh, running, running agencies. So uh, um, it's uh, um, interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah, speaking of uh, you know uh, uh, people taking uh, you know positions at the. Um, we also saw some uh, some more of a movement uh, around the FDA commissioner search. Um, a number of opioid focus groups suggested that acting commissioner Janet Woodcock should not get the permanent position. Uh, the groups th that didn't appreciate the decisions she's made on opioid or she oversaw on opioid approvals uh, over the years and believe she's too industry friendly. We also saw senators uh, Maggie Hassan and Ed Markey um, issue a statement saying that the commissioner should be someone who learned from FDA's mistakes, not uh, been involved in repeating them, uh, which is a, you know, strong, kind of a, a strong word seemingly against confirmation for her, uh, should she reach that stage. Um, a couple of these groups put their support behind Josh Sharfstein, the other rumored front runner for the position, who's a former uh, FDA principal deputy commissioner, is now working at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, to be clear, there are a lot of, there are some legal hurdles that uh, Dr. Woodcock would have to overcome, given that she's already in the acting role um, if if they want to nominate her for commissioner, but it's not impossible. Um, but are you too surprised that opioids are emerging at least at this stage? You know, once again in a commissioner uh, in commissioner fight. It seems like this is something we kind of forgot about, given you know the pandemic and and everything else that's been going on. I think you're uh, I think you're you're right, uh, Derek. Just we're kind of on in terms of sort of, kind of public health emergencies, coronavirus are kind of uh, um, you know went uh, way to the top of the list and. Uh, um, it's a question is for kind of, uh, you know, at, uh, at what point is for kind of, does, does other stuff for kind of, uh, um, uh, enter the consciousness, uh, um, again, but, uh, you know, if you think about sort of kind of what, uh, people sort of understand about what FDA does, uh, um, you know, obviously there are, uh, communities of folks who are kind of, who are hoping that FDA will approve cures and treatments for the, uh, diseases that they and their loved ones, uh, um, are suffering from, um, but uh, because of the magnitude of the uh, the opioid uh, epidemics for kind of what FDA does with these products is probably, you know, something that's for kind of selling it to, uh, um, you know, a vast number of uh, people, perhaps more than just those waiting for a particular uh, um, drug to get approved or, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of research to get uh, to get done on uh, on that. So in terms of sort of kind of uh, thinking about sort of, kind of what uh, um, the public might understand about sort of kind of uh, how FDA operates. Uh, FDA operates. Uh, um, it, it could be a uh, um, an actually uh, um, something that's going to has uh, um, some broad understanding in the uh, in the general community. So I can see why this would be a factor in uh, um, in, a, in the confirmation fights. And actually, um, CDC has put out some data over the course of the pandemic um, that that indicates opioid related deaths have gone up. Um, you know, sort of. I think the thinking is that, you know, people's just sort of access to general kind of health care and support other, you know, sort of mental health support, even just, you know, their normal kind of social interaction, maybe, um, you know, making struggles with kind of substance use even harder now. So that's sort of an interesting dynamic here, although certainly um, hard to know how you fit that into like a particular FDA commissioner nominee but i mean it's an issue that definitely has dropped from attention but has been kind of you always see it as one of the like high up lists of like things that people say like we need to not lose sight of <laughs> because of covid 
um, taking all the attention. I guess for me, I guess I, I don't know. It's just, it's, I mean, Woodcock obviously has been at FDA for so long. So when you're at an, an agency like FDA for, for that long and, you know, science and even, you know, sort of like the like, trying to think of how you describe like sort of the way we sort of the culture of policy, you know, and attitudes in society change about how we do certain things. I mean, um, the opioid sort of crisis in this country, I think, has there have been so many like multifaceted um, causes to it and FDA probably gets some part of the blame, but I think anybody who's looked at that would, you know, see there's, it's a very multi-pronged um, issue. So it, it's just, it would seem a little bit strange for me to, for, for this to be like pinned on one cut, but even I was remembering when they sort of target, um, when that became an issue in Caleb's nomination, he really had not had much to do with opioids at all. And it was basically like senators using the issue, they wanted to sort of draw attention to the issue and almost use it to kind of get like, we want sort of a promise or commitment from you, um, Dr. Califf, to address this. And once you sort of give us enough confidence you'll on how you'll handle this, then we'll clear it. I'm not sure that's the same dynamic going on with Woodcock, but sometimes, you know, peop, um, lawmakers and people sort of, they want to make sure, they use the commissioner nomination process as a way to bring attention to an issue that they want action on. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a different dynamic. I personally, as like your story, um, Derek, went into, I, I think like the Sarepta decision, you know, other decisions or trends um, from FDA over recent years in terms of like the general general drug approval standards and quality, I think, is going to be more of an issue for Woodcock. I thought it would be more of an issue for Woodcock than um, opioids, but. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I think you're. Go ahead, Jerry. Uh, sorry, I was going to say that, you know, the, the, I, I was thinking about it just now, Sarah, when you mentioned it. I mean, Janet, I think, was running Cedar before kind of pain became like the fifth what a, the the fifth like uh, thing that they vital they had sign. doctor yeah the fifth vital sign and then Ray kept running Cedar after it became the fifth vital sign and now that now is still running Cedar that you know we're we're trying to get you know you know climb out of that kind of what a, you know the that that thinking with physicians so she's yeah she's got the you know the the before the during and the after to kind of you know record to look at but uh, you know. The other thing people don't think about is that, you know, it, yeah, you know, opioids have been overprescribed and there's a, a big misuse problem and everything else, but there are, there is a segment of the population with chronic pain that needs access to opioids and all the restrictions that they've tried to put in and things they've done, I mean, that you you hear the complaints from people, like people that say like, you know, I have chronic pain, you're making it twice as difficult for me to get a script filled now. And every time I go to the pharmacy, they're asking me if I'm, you know, they're they're doing the, you know, they're asking me if I'm, you know, drug seeking or, you know, they're going through all these extra checks and it's taking, you know, it's making my life a lot more difficult. And so, you know, she's trying to balance that in addition to, you know, we can't approve, you know, it's not it's not a black and white issue, I guess, is what I'm getting at. There's, you know, it, so to, to, to like you said, to put all this blame just to say it's, you know, she's been kind of these, these decisions have all been bad is like, you know, really not, uh, not really looking at considering the whole picture, I think that she has to look at. 
Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very well put, uh, uh, Derek. The uh, um, uh, you know, the, you sort of look at sort of, sort of you know, say public citizen and sort of some more uh, um, libertarian folks on the uh, other end of the spectrum, and they sort of do see it as like it's just a simple thing. You either sort of kind of sort of kind of uh, um, you know wait until you're absolutely sure with no uh, um, no questions at all, or you just uh, you know trust uh, people to figure it out on their own, and uh, um, you're sort of trying to find that uh, um, that balance. Uh, um, between those two absolutes, uh, um, you know, you will uh, you make some mistakes, and you're going to have to, uh, um, uh, you know, learn and, and go on as uh, as science evolves, uh, um, as you were as you were noting. And sort of certainly, uh, um, just given the long track record that Dr. Woodcock uh, has, there are going to be uh, you know things that uh, um, people just disagree with uh, um, with what she's done. And uh, you know, sir, as you noted, through kind of this uh, perhaps sort of uh, you know eagerness to move uh, um, uh, drugs through is. Uh, you know, sort of out of sync with sort of what you would uh, think is sort of kind of a typical, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of more liberal approach to uh, uh, to things. Liberal being sort of kind of the left, I suppose. I suppose sort of kind of uh, let, let 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 anything go, uh, uh, kind of uh, use of the uh, the adjective there. But uh, um, uh, it's uh, um, it's an easy way for people who are kind of sort of object to drug uh, approvals to make that point that sort of kind of there are uh you know obviously drugs that sort of kind of have you know shown to have side effects or kind of in the uh um in the post market but if you want to look for something with sort of kind of who's who, um a product that sort of did not uh, turn out as well as uh you know sort of people hoped uh, uh when it uh, uh got approved i think sort of opioids is a good way to sort of kind of make the case that sort of kind of that uh, drug approvals are too speedy and so uh um you know, it's a, uh, um, a kind of a foot in the door for that, uh, for that argument. And, uh, um, uh, you know, to the extent that it's sort of kind of, kind of can get FDA to kind of sort of, uh, slow down everywhere. I think those folks would, uh, um, would be, uh, um, would be eager to, uh, um, to see that and, uh, um, whether they can, uh, uh, use this as leverage to extract a pledge on, uh, you know, different review approach, approaches overall. I'm not so, uh, I'm not so certain, and sort of kind of it's still, uh, um, you know, uh, unclear for who the nominee is going to be. But uh, it's obviously, sort of a, uh, a it's a microcosm of this sort of kind of macro debate about sort of kind of uh, you know what philosophy FDA should have. And I should mention that this morning I got an email from a rare disease group that was you know that is in support of Dr. Woodcock for commissioner in part because she has embraced the they're calling it the flexibility. Uh, argument in terms of, you know, making sure, you know, helping rare disease drugs get, you know, get through uh, because they're so hard to study and so hard to develop. So, um, you know, you're going to see people on the other side of this too come out, I, I think, in the next, you know, as we're, as we're going forward here to kind of make sure that that's not lost, that, you know, that, uh, you know, access to treatments is just as important as, um, you know, making sure, you know, ensuring safety and efficacy and, and, and so forth. The other thing I, I keep wondering with the if it's if it's really down to Woodcock versus Sharfstein, Woodcock is already obviously an FDA employee. Is she going to leave if she doesn't get the nomination? Because if you like both of them, why not nominate Sharfstein and leave Woodcock <laughs> in another senior role? And then you maybe they sort of 
can balance each other out too in <laughs> philosophies, I guess, um, unless there's like a, a real concern that Woodcock leaves if she's not the commissioner, you know, it seems like you could, again, if you, if you're, if you're considering both of them, you know, why not maybe potentially get the best of both worlds? Yeah, I guess it depends on sort of kind of what philosophy you, uh, um, you like more. And, uh, um, you know, I think uh, I perhaps sort of, uh, um, uh, Oversimplified what uh, um, Sharpstein's philosophy uh, might be. Obviously, so speaking for sort of what public citizen wants, and obviously not, uh, you know, Sharpstein worked there briefly, but he's not, uh, he's not public citizen. He obviously has a much more nuanced understanding of uh, of benefit and uh, um, and harm than uh, um, than all that. So it's just a uh, it's a question of sort of kind of uh, you know who's going to uh, you know energize and uh, um, revive uh, you know FDA after sort of kind of the uh, um, the, uh, the 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 uh, conflicts with Trump and sort of kind of and who is sort of kind of uh, best positioned to uh, um, you know get the uh, the kind of uh, you know food oversight or you know tobacco uh, interventions that uh, the, the the things that's obviously sort of kind of sort of kind of uh, suck up a lot of oxygen that sort of kind of we don't uh, you know cover uh, um, uh, you know for uh, for the pink sheet but uh, um, it is a uh, um, it's one of those uh, um, Real challenges. That's just sort of kind of what uh, um, you know. What the person at the top can uh, can do to, uh, to to shape the whole agency. Well, and and we might be completely discounting the fact that you know Janet may not want the job. I mean, she might be doing this you know not as a favor, but I mean, as a you know because she was asked by Stephen Hahn to to do this, and she had been she had kind of transitioned out of Cedar to do Operation Warp Speed, and now was asked to come back and kind of keep the ship going forward here for, uh, you know, a few months while they figure out, um, you know, who's going to run the, run the, the agency next. And, you know, I mean, she said in the past that she likes being close to the science and doesn't like a lot of, you know, a lot of the administrative stuff. So she might want to go back to Cedar and, and doing drug regulation. I mean, she might not be interested in um, food and, and tobacco and, and, and so forth. I mean, that's, that's not a knock against those centers. They're very important, but you know, it just could be that Janet's specialty and her focus and what she likes the most is the, uh, you know, is, is Cedar. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and now Spotify by searching for pharma intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.